to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6. While you're uh, turning there, just a few things. Uh, we had a lot of moving pieces this week on the band. So uh, first off, give them a round of applause. They did a great job this morning. Um, Joe learned how to play bass for us, and so we're glad that he did that. And since uh, we needed Chad on the guitar, my, my little brother came up and played with us from Dalhart this morning. And so we're thankful that he came. Uh, so if you're wondering who the weird kid was that looked like me, that, that's my little brother. Um, and so he got, Jeff asked why he got all the rhythm and what happened to me. And so I just told him that Matt got the talent, my sister got the looks, and I guess I got a big personality. I, I don't know. My dad's here. You can ask him what happened. I don't know. Uh, Revelation chapter 6, and if you would please stand this morning uh, as we honor the reading of God's word. Revelation chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 9. Verse 9 tells us this. It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come and who can stand? Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for your word. I uh, just pray that uh, as we look at it today that, that we would make much of Jesus, uh, that we would lift him high, uh, that this lamb who was slain, who's risen again, will return one day. Uh, and Father, for some of us in this room, that is a great and wonderful day. Uh, it's a happy day. It's a day that we look forward to. And Father, for some of us in this room, that's not going to be a good day. And so we pray that if there's anyone in here today that does not know you, that they can leave this place today saying what started out, what may end up being a bad day for them, they left here saying it's going to be a good day. Uh, thank you for all you've given us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You guys can have a seat. Well, uh, if you're visiting with us, one of the things we like to do here is we preach verse by verse through books of the Bible. And so since early January, we've been going verse by verse through the book of Revelation. And the thing that I, I've tried to impress upon the church here is that Revelation's not like this gloom and doom book that most people believe it is. That, that in fact, it's a very hopeful book. It's, it's a book about God's plan for the redemption of the world. The book was written by the Apostle John, and it was written to the seven churches in Asia Minor. And the book was written to them to encourage them in their tribulation. But it was written to them, but it was written for us, right? And so every time you read Revelation, you got to remember that. Written to them for us. So it's written to us to comfort us in our tribulation. 
John tells us in chapter 1, verse 9, that he is their brother in the tribulation. That the tribulation is not some future event way down the road that, that we're waiting on, but the tribulation is happening right now. That it began the minute Jesus went up into heaven and that we will stay in this tribulation until he returns to make all things new. And in chapters 4 and 5, John's given a vision of the throne room in heaven. And what John sees is all redeemed Christians from the Old and the New Testament worshiping the God the Father for who he is in creation. And he says that they cry out day and night, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. That they worship God for creating all things, but not just for creating them, but for literally right now as we sit in here holding all things together. That the reason we're breathing, the reason we exist is that God right now in heaven is holding all this thing together. And so the saints in heaven are, are worshiping him for that. And then in chapter five, the scene shifts and we see God the Father hold out a scroll. And what we said is, is that this scroll contains the drama of human history. And an angel, a mighty angel, calls out with a loud voice, who's worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals and to read its contents? Who's worthy to approach the Father? If you remember what happens is that John's heartbroken as he's standing there and he begins to weep and he begins to cry because he's looking around and nobody's worthy to approach God the Father and take the seals or break, take the scroll and break the seals. Nobody can do it. And so he's, he's heartbroken because John knows if somebody can't take the scroll, if he can't break it, he can't read it, then the drama of human history cannot play out. Then there is absolutely no hope for humanity. But then one of the elders comes and he put, pats John on the back and he says, weep no more. He says, behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he's been found worthy. And I love it because John looks up. And what's John hoping to see? John's thinking there's going to be this massive lion. That's what he thinks he's going to see. But instead, John looks up and he sees a lamb standing as though slain. Literally, the language is, is that the lamb standing there with its throat cut open as if it had been slaughtered. But since it's standing, it's not limping, it's not slumped over, it's telling us that Jesus is not dead, that Jesus is alive, okay? There's your Easter message right there. The lamb who was slain is standing. He's alive. He is not dead. And because he's alive, he's defeated Satan's sin and death, and he's been found worthy to take the seal, to take the scroll and break the seals. And as soon as he walks up to the Father's right hand and he takes the scroll, it says that the heavens burst into song, praising the Lamb, saying, blessing and honor and glory and power to the one who saves. And then last week, we, we looked at, John, at, at, at chapter 6. And what we read was about the, the four horsemen who've been set forth on the earth. And again, not describing a future event down the road, that these four horsemen are on this earth right now as we speak. They're, they're wreaking havoc. And so the, the first horseman represents false Christ, right? Anything that we trust in other than Christ, that's why he's on a white horse. That's why he's wearing a crown is that he's there to deceive. And, and mainly what we said is that this is the idol of political power. There's so many of us fall for over and over again, right? We get the right guy, get the right girl, whatever it is up in Washington. We can fix things. We can change things. And so we fall into this idol of political power. The, the second writer was permitted to take peace from the world. And, and that writer does that by literal war, 
right? There's been almost 4,000 conflicts in this world since about 1897. They're gonna continue to go until Jesus comes back. But, but also he takes peace through spiritual problems, right? People are restless. All of us are restless. We're trying to find some sort of peace. The third rider represents famine and the impact that wars have on the world through loss of food and shortages of food, right? Which we've still experienced that to this very day. There are food shortages all over the world right now. And then the fourth rider ties them all together. The fourth rider's death, and death comes in a variety of ways. Death comes through war, death comes through famine, death comes through disease, uh, and then also it says that death comes through wild beasts, meaning through persecution. And so although these riders are on the earth causing damage, roaming right here, right now, they only do what God has allowed them to do. And if you notice in John chapter six, the first rider was given a crown. The second rider is given a sword and he's permitted to take peace. And the fourth rider is only allowed to kill so many people. And so in other words, what it shows us is that the worst of the worst is bound and constrained by the hand of almighty God that he is in control of everything that happens. So no matter how bad things look, no matter how dark it looks, we all know as believers where this thing is headed, right? We know that Jesus will come and drop the curtain on this thing and it's all driving towards him. All right, and then in verse nine, it brings us to the fifth seal. So what I want you to know is this. So the first four seals, it shows what's happening on heaven right now. Right? These writers are all over the world. These things are happening. And then in chapter uh, 6, verse 9, the scene shifts back to heaven. Now, John is looking into heaven, and look what he sees in verses 9 through 11. And when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long? before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were given a white robe and told to rest a little bit longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So the scene shifts, we're back up in heaven and the fifth seal opens and we're still dealing with the same time frame. We're still talking about the time between the first and second comings of Christ. But right now, instead of seeing it from perspective of the world, we're seeing it from the vantage point of believers who have already gone on to their eternal reward in heaven. So John sees the souls of those who died in the faith. But he chooses to focus on those who've been slain for the word of God and their witness for him. The martyrs, still happening all over the world right now. Last Friday, there was a, or last Sunday, excuse me, there was a uh, suicide bombing. Uh, across the world, over in uh, Pakistan, somewhere around over there, um, as a man walked into a church and blew himself up. This is still continuing to happen. These martyrs are still with us. But also what we see is also true of all those who die in Christ. So I wanna make this very clear. He's focusing on the martyrs, but what he sees is true of everyone who dies in Christ. So if you notice in heaven, these people, they're conscious. They can both think, they can feel, and it says that they cried out with a loud voice. So in other words, they're experiencing deep and passionate emotions in heaven. And remember, this vision is symbolic. It's not photographic. What John is seeing is given to describe what's going on with the souls in heaven. And so what this passage shows us is what theologians call the intermediate state. 
So this is the condition of all Christians who have died and are now in heaven. And it's called the intermediate state because it's our experience between earth and heaven. It's our experience that, uh, it's, it's, it's because it's between our experience now on earth and our experience that is to come when Christ returns and gives us glorified bodies. That's why it's called intermediate. And if you notice, those in the intermediate state, they're not up there sleeping, all right? They're not up there on a cloud with their little harp, right? And their little cherub angel wings and a diaper, right? They're not up there doing any of those things. They are up there and they burn with desire for the purposes of God to be fulfilled on the earth. They burn with the desire for righteousness and peace to come. And if you notice in verse 10, their cry. In verse 10, they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? The church, if you notice, does not escape the trials of life between the coming of Christ. All right, we talked about this last week, is that there is no secret vacuuming out that's gonna happen is that the church will endure, the church will go through trials and difficulties. The purpose for us as Christians is not to be happy, healthy, wealthy, and successful. That garbage passes as Christianity in too many churches these days. That if you just trust in Jesus, then everything's gonna be okay. Just trust in Jesus and you're gonna drive a Ferrari. Just trust in Jesus and you're gonna be rich. And if most of you are honest in here, that has not been your experience at all. Most of you have walked with Jesus for a very long time and you can say that you've went through many difficulties and dangers and toils and snares and that life has not always been easy. See, we don't get to escape the trials of life, but we persevere through them. We endure with our eyes set on Jesus as the horsemen ride across the world. See, that's exactly what these saints have done who are in heaven. They've endured, they've suffered, they've bled, they've died, and they've finished the race, and they've won their prize. They're with Jesus. But even though they've won, look, they're still grieving over the continued presence of evil in a world where Jesus is Lord. And so look what they do in verse 10. They cry out, how long? So in other words, how long until justice is done? How long? And isn't that our cry sometimes? If it's not as a Christian, it should be. How long? Like, like, Lord, how long must we face death and pain? How long must we suffer from disease? How long until people stop dying? How long? How long until the waves of sadness and depression keep rolling over us? Right? If you're like me, sometimes it seems like you, you just get above water just enough to catch your breath and then boom, it hits you again. It just rolls over you. If you weren't asking how long this week I worry about you, how long, Lord, until you come back and right all wrongs? How long until you come and fix this thing? How long? And look what Jesus tells him in verse 11. He says, rest a little longer. Rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So in other words, Jesus says, hey, persevere just a little bit longer. Just a little bit longer. And what I want you to notice is there's an end date to all this. Did you catch that? Jesus says just a little bit longer until the exact number of those who will be slain for the faith come into heaven. 
until that last person crosses the finish line. Wait just a little bit longer. See, it seems disappointing when when our needs are so severe and urgent, doesn't it? I mean, it seems like God doesn't care. Right, when we want Christ to, to, to return and he keeps saying, just a little bit longer, right? Just a little bit longer. But I want you to notice, look again at verse nine. Where are these saints at? He says, when I opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they bore. They're under the altar. They're under the place where atonement has been made and forgiveness has been won. They dwell in the good of all that Jesus has won for them at the cross. So rest a little bit longer, clothed in white robes of righteousness. That's what John sees as the souls of these believers in white robes resting under the altar. They're finding their rest in the salvation that has been won for them on the cross by Jesus Christ. And listen, that's the secret for you and me right here on this earth. This is how we continue to persevere through many dangers, toils, snares, through the difficulties of life, is that if you're in Christ in this room, you're resting under the altar of his forgiveness right now. That's where you're at. You're safe in the knowledge that while the whole world is dark and hard and we're tired and we're sore and we're weary that the lamb who was slain has, been, has risen again. He's worthy to take the scroll of human history and he is the one who is taking this thing in the direction that it needs to go. And what he tells us is that he was slain and because he was slain by his blood, he's ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. So in other words, brothers and sisters, get under the altar and rest. You might be suffering today. You might be going through difficulty today, but Jesus says, get under the altar and rest. Because oftentimes, Jesus will answer our prayers with not yet, won't he? A lot of times, that's been my prayer. For six years now, that's been my prayer. Not yet, not yet. Not yet, but under the altar of the finished work of Christ crucified for us, there you and I find the resources to persevere. See, if he doesn't return in our lifetime, you and I know where this thing is headed. We know that that what we have waiting for us are crowns and robes of white, but we also know, listen, that there is a day coming where his not yet will turn into right now, don't we? And that's exactly what happens next. Look at verse 12. So Jesus has told them, not yet. The time's not yet. But then look in verse 12, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. So the sixth seal's broken. And again, the cry goes from not yet until right now. So as the day of judgment is dawning, that's what's happening. The six seals broke, Jesus is returning, and the scene shifts from the, uh, from the perspective of heaven to now we're back on earth and we're seeing the end of history from the view of the unconverted. We're seeing the view of history from those who are unsaved. And what John describes here, listen to me, it's not something that's literal, Right? This isn't an event that you can look for by reading the newspaper, by watching Fox News, or since some of you don't watch that anymore, Newsmax, right? John was immersed 
in the Old Testament, not in the 21st century, right? He's writing as a first century Jew. And so Andrew Perryman tells us that we should try and uh, read forward from the first century rather than read backward from the 21st century. And see, one of the reasons we struggle with this language is that we try to read it retrospectively, which doesn't work. See, in the Old Testament, this sort of language we find is used to describe upheaval and turmoil among the nations figuratively through cosmic terminology. So in other words, astronomical phenomena are used to describe the upheaval of earthly dynasties as well as great moral and spiritual changes on the earth. All right? I'll prove it to you real quickly. In Isaiah 13.10, we read of the impending judgment of God on Babylon which was an historical event, and he describes it this way. For the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising, and the moon will not shed its light, right? Astronomical phenomena to describe something that's happening on earth. We find the same thing in Ezekiel as he describes the impending destruction uh, of Egypt. Ezekiel 32, 7 through 9 and verse 15 says, When I blot you out, I will cover the heavens and make their stars dark. I will cover the sun with a cloud and the moon shall not give its light. All the bright lights of heaven will I make dark over you and put darkness on your land, declares the Lord God. When I make the land of Egypt desolate, when the land is desolate of all that fills it, when I strike down all who dwell in it, then they will know that I am the Lord. Again, astronomical phenomena to describe a historical event on earth. The destruction of Eden is described this way in Isaiah 34, Four through five. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves fall from the vine, like leaves falling from the fig tree. For my sword has drunk its fill of the heavens. Behold, it descends for judgment upon Edom, upon the people I have devoted to destruction. So you get the point. This is Jewish imagery being used to refer to major socio-political events. So John's not saying that bizarre astronomical phenomena will occur, okay? Sorry, blood moon, folks. I hate to break that to you. He's saying the judgment of God will soon fall on the entire earth. And those who refuse to repent and believe the gospel are in trouble. Look at verse 15. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals, the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? So in, other words, so in chapter five, we see God ransoming uh, those without distinction from every nation, tongue, people, tribe, right? The whole known world. In chapter seven, we see the same thing, but check it out. It's on the opposite end. We see people without distinction being judged. So you have the kings of the earth. You have the great ones, the generals, the rich and powerful, but then they're contrasted along the slave and the free. Judgment comes upon all regardless of their status in society. Judgment comes upon all regardless of their wealth or their influence. Kings and slaves are accountable to God Almighty. See, the great leveler of humanity is God's wrath. The rich and the powerful, they might be able to avoid the hardships of Rona. Right? They probably had toilet paper when we didn't. 
but they can't avoid God's wrath. The generals of the earth, they can't call upon troops to fight the lamb. See, what the sixth seal is showing us is the end of human history. The curtain has fallen and Christ has returned. And those who have never trusted in him, those who have never put their faith in his life, his death, and his resurrection, instead of a joyous day of celebration and a day of answered prayers, as the Lord returns to right all wrongs and settle all accounts, right? Instead of a day of them going, yes, that how long is turning to right now, to them it's a scary day. They are freaked out, and they're like, man, I'm going to go hide from God. So I'm going to go find a mountain, and I'm going to go hide in the rocks. I'm going to go hide in a cave. And it's insanity to think that you can escape the coming judgment of God. And listen, they clearly know that this judgment is coming from God. Look what they say in verse 16. They call to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us, and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. And folks, it's not like they weren't given time. We're gonna find out later in the book of Revelation that they had chance after chance after chance. They saw what God was doing in the world. The gospel was presented to them, but yet they still refused to believe. And see, listen, there are a lot of people in this world today, and maybe you're in here, maybe you're one of them, and you insist that humans are by nature good people, that they're inherently upright and they're not sinful. But see, what we see right here in this passage is the total opposite of that view. What we see here is what theologians call total depravity. See, in the final analysis, these people have all the same evidence and proof that we do, but they don't want to look to God. They don't want to trust in him for salvation. They want to hide from the face of him who is seated on the throne. So listen, if you're a believer in this room today, you should be thankful for God's saving mercy. You should be thankful that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, that you looked upon the lamb that was slain, and instead of being fearful, you were filled with joy and thankfulness. That today you're in here to worship the risen lamb, that you love the lamb, that the lamb loves you, that you will not suffer the wrath of the lamb because the spirit has led you to put your trust in what the lamb did on the cross for sinners. The lamb who died has risen again. There's your Easter message right there. He is not dead. He is alive. And listen, he will return to settle accounts one day. There's a reckoning coming and he will come back. He will one day return to answer our prayer, how long, O oh Lord? And that's gonna be a wonderful day for some of us, won't it? That'll be a great day because some of us will get to see the Jesus that we've been chasing our whole lives. We'll see him face to face. All the sad things of this world will come untrue. All the broken things will be mended. Everything will be made right. And so Christian, listen, today of all days, here in a moment when we stand to sing, you need to stand and sing with everything you've got to this lamb who is not dead but is alive. But also, listen to me, what we see is a great polarization that is also coming on that day. So for some of us, it's going to be a wonderful day. But for others, it will not be. 
So let me speak very plainly to some of you this morning, and this is the part of Easter that we don't want to think about and we don't talk about, that when Jesus does come back, he won't be little six-pound, eight-ounce baby Jesus in his golden fleece diaper, Ricky Bobby, okay? That's not who's coming back. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, that's not who's coming back. Check Revelation 21. He comes back on a white horse in a robe dipped in blood with a sword in his hand and a tattoo up his leg. This is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so you can either be happy at Jesus' return or you can be like these people and you can go run and hide and pray for the rocks to fall on you. And listen to me, even if the rocks fall on you, you will still not escape his wrath. And there's only one way to avoid that wrath today. Joe read this to us early in 1 Timothy 2, verses 5 through 6. It says, for there is only one God and there's one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all. That the only way that you can be made right with God is not through your good works. It's not you walking out this door going, hey, great, wonderful message. Let's go home and eat some prime rib and just uh, watch a little TV and just enjoy the family, right? I'm a good family man. I'm going to be a good person. That's not what's going to get you into heaven. You can go out and do all the good deeds you want and try to be the best person you can. But in the final analysis, God's going to say it's not enough. The only way for us to be saved is through Jesus Christ. Is by putting our faith and trust in what Jesus did for us. That Jesus lived the life that you were supposed to live, but you can't live because of your sin. That Jesus died the death that you deserve. It should have been us on the cross, not him. But Jesus said, no, I'll take responsibility for you. And Jesus took our sins upon himself. He absorbed the wrath of God in our place for our sins. So that now, if we've trusted in Jesus, when God looks at us, he no longer sees us, but Jesus. He doesn't see your failures and your shortcomings and your mess ups and and all the crud that you've done. Instead, he says, no, that's my son. So that one day when he returns and he says, hey, why should I let you in? I'm not going to stand there and go, well, I was a really good guy, right? I got up and preached a lot of wonderful Easter messages there at First Baptist Church Spearman. No, I'm going to be scanning the room and go, Jesus, that's why you're letting me in. And he says, that's exactly right, because Jesus paid the price for you. So let me ask you, what keeps you from trusting Jesus today? What evidence do you have that you're going to be able to survive without him? What gives you hope that you'll avoid the wrath of God without Jesus? What is it? See, chapter 6 shows us polar extremes. It shows us the rest of those of us who will die in Christ. It shows us what's waiting for those of us who will see him face to face. It shows us what's going to happen when he returns. But then it also shows us the fear of those who die without him. So there is time for repentance today. If you have not trusted in Jesus, would you grab a friend today? Or maybe Joe or or myself here in a moment. And let's get that settled. Let's repent and trust in Jesus. And then listen, after you've settled that, you can stand and sing alongside the brothers and sisters in this room and be thankful for the shelter that is found at the cross of Christ. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, I I thank you so much for this day and I thank you for what you've given us. I thank you for what your word shows us. Father, we know that you are not dead and that you are coming back one day. And that, Father, on that day, it will be a day of reckoning for many of us in this room who have not trusted in you. And so I pray that there's anyone in here that's never trusted in your life and your death and your resurrection in their place for their sins, that they wouldn't leave here today until they get it settled. 
so that they can leave here saying, man, what, what, what I thought was going to be a scary day is now a wonderful day for me, and I look forward to it. And then finally, for the Christians in this room, for my brothers and sisters, for believers, for those of us who've been crying out how long, and we keep hearing you say not yet, could you just help us rest just a little bit longer under the altar? To rest under the forgiveness that's been bought by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, that we could rest in our Lord and our rock and our Redeemer. Being thankful for one day that, that our cry of how long will go to right now and we'll see you face to face and you're going to fix everything that's a good day and I look forward to it so could we please now Lord stand and sing with all we've got to the lamb who was slain and it's in your name we pray amen please stand